Tonight, we discuss the Vilna Gaon. And the reason why I wanted to include him in this course on heroes and villains is because he's unique in a certain respect. And that is, where there, whereas there are certain people who are definitely villains, or certain people who are definitely heroes, and other people about whom there is a degree of controversy... The Vilna Gaon is the only person I can think of in the history of modern Judaism who was extremely controversial in his own time in a partisan, on a, with a partisan issue, yet about whom no one could ever say a bad thing. In other words, even for his adversaries, he's a hero. He's unique in that respect. And I want to show that this evening as we discuss the life of the Vilna Gaon only briefly, um, because it's not that exciting of a life. He was a hermit who learned all day. Um, he was in the cloistered room. But the two major issues about his legacy are whether or not he was a muscul, whether he was an enlightened person, or whether he's a harbinger of the Haskalah. And the second issue is, well, among his adversaries, how was he viewed? if not in the normal way that adversaries take on their opponents and say bad things about them, what could the Hasidim possibly say about the Vilna Gon to justify their own existence in light of the fact that the greatest Jew in the history of the last 500 years was their adversary? What can they say about him if they can't um, be belligerent? Those are the, the two main issues. His relationship to Hasidut after, uh, posthumously and his relationship to Haskalah. Okay. So just a little bit of biography to start off. Eliyahu ben Shlomo Zalman was born in 1720 in the Grodno district, uh, moves to Vilna, gets married at the age of 18, travels around in Poland and in Germany for a bunch of years, wandering in exile as was the style of the time, and eventually resettles in Vilna in 1748 at the age of 28 where he remains for the rest of his life until he dies in 1797. What occupies his attention in life? The study of Torah. So, there are many legends told about him, that he knew the Tanakh by heart at the age of three, that he was uh, a student of the Talmud from an early age, and that by the age of six he was already answering questions on complicated <laughs> tractates, and that by the age of 10 he knew so much that he could no longer have teachers because he knew more than the teachers, uh, but by the age of 11 he knew the Talmud by heart. Um, that, that's it in terms of his rapid ability to conquer rabbinic literature. Is this apocryphal? Okay, so some of it must be apocryphal, but a significant portion of it is true. So let me get to the other issues about how he was able to accomplish such great learning. How did he spend his time? Well, we spend our time, a significant portion of the day, sleeping, eating, taking care of bodily functions, you know, earning a living, whereas they just said about the Vilna Gon that he learned 22 hours a day and only slept for two hours a day, and never for more than a half hour at a time, and that in the winter he put his feet in cold water so that he wouldn't fall asleep, that he'd always be awake. Various stratagems to keep him focused on Torah. Huh? Married, yes, although there were times he spent considerable uh, uh, weeks or months away from his family as he would go off into the, uh, the wild blue yonder to, to <laughs> contemplate and to, stu and to, and to learn. Yeah? What about being 
Okay, so he did not spend much att- time or attention on his children, although his two sons were considered of his disciples, yet he never really had disciples. He had people who came in and out and heard some of his wisdom, especially after the age of 40 when he no longer wrote down notes, but rather relied upon underlings to take notes for him because his mind was operating so fast. He was a mayan amid gaber. He was spewing great wisdom of Torah a mile a minute, and he couldn't take the time to write things down. He had others do it for him, including his sons. But in terms of a, a close familial relationship, it was lacking. Um, that Moshe Rabbeinu had the same thing. Okay, yeah. How affected was he by the Musa movement? You said he had a certain internal galut that he would go off. Okay, so he predates, obviously, Rabbi Israel Salanter and the, and the official Musa movement by a good century, uh, or a little bit less than that. Um, yet, he was continuing in the traditions of the old line Hasidim. He was Eliyahu Mivilna. He was the Gaon of Vilna, but he was also HaChasid. He was a great Hasid. In the pre-Bal Shem Tov iteration of what Hasidut means. What does that mean? Alright, so of course, he's a great Kabbalist. Alright, so Vilna Gaon was a great Kabbalist who knew the Zohar by heart, Baal Peh, and also the ancillary works of the Kabbalah, and he believed in practical Kabbalah, and it is claimed that he tried to build a golem, but he stopped when he realized that God didn't want him to. So he uh, was this Hasid who believed in Tikkun Hamidot, in correcting the, uh, the attributes of a person, the characteristics of a person. What are the three ways in which you achieve uh, success, spiritual success? the study of Torah, the performance of the mitzvot, and tikkun hamidot. But, of the three, the main focus was the study of Torah, more so than the observance of the mitzvot, and even tikkun hamidot, uh, because he would argue that through the study of Torah, you could accomplish the others, if you really studied the right way. The Vilna Gaon is an example of trying to balance, and having a delicate balance, of Torah and Yira, study of Torah and fear of heaven. Does one lead to the other? Does Yira lead to study of Torah? Does Torah lead to Yira? So it can and it should at its best, but it doesn't always. You could have a person who is a Yirei Shemayim, but is an ignorant fool. You could also have someone who is a great scholar, but doesn't have Yirei Shemayim. And in the, in the worldview of the Vilna Gon, that person would have been a failure, because you have to successfully combine the two. All right. Um, the Vilna Gon did not occupy an official position ever in his life. He was not a rabbi of a town. He was not the rabbi of Vilna. He uh, rejected any attempt to put him in a position of, of significance. What put bread on his table? Yeah. Ah, so what put bread on his table? Uh, the answer to that is... No, 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 no. Well, he would argue in part, yes... But what put bread on his table was that he was a descendant of Moshe Ravkash, who, had a, who was a wealthy man and who left a, a, a bequest to the, the scholarly members of his family in subsequent generations that they should have Parnassa. Also, the city of Vilna gave him an allowance. And later in his career, that allowance would be higher than the Av Bezdin of Vilna got. So he was respected by the, the masses and respected by the Panasim, the officialdom of the Vilna community, 
recognizing his great stature, that he was one of a generation, or one in many, many generations, and they gave him the material wherewithal to survive without having to distract himself with learning a livelihood. So that played an important role in his success in learning, that he sort of jettisoned any family responsibilities and didn't have to worry about earning. He could focus exclusively on the Torah study. Okay. Um, I don't know about that. So he, the, the Vilna Gon believed that it was not a good idea, at least for someone on his level, and even people on slightly lower levels, to interact with, with others. He was a hermit. He, he, said, he believed that being a recluse was a good thing. You have, yeah. That was my question. If he was such a, recu- a recluse... Oh, okay, so that's the classic question. How do we even know who he was? All right, we'll get to that in about two minutes. Let me just explain the issue of, of being a recluse. He believed that interact, social interaction inevitably leads to compromising in one's religious piety because whether it's the issues of Lush and Hara or just you know failure in your Ben Adam Lachavero. You can avoid all that by simply divorcing yourself from the world. Now, okay, so the, the counter-argument is you have to be Orla Goyim, and the, the, the Torah was a Torah for the Olam Hazeh, not for, for a cloistered room or for the Olam Haba. There are many good counter-arguments to that, but he firmly believed, at least for himself, that was the way to go. Get rid of any uh, social interaction. Okay, in, in, um, in fulfilling this, one of his famous examples of uh, declining to participate in cultural affairs was his non-involvement in the Emden Ibishitz controversy. That when asked for his opinion, and he was approached by the Ibishitz side of the controversy, not the Emden side, interestingly, he said, I'm not going to get involved. It was 1756, he was a man of 36 years old, and Emden and Ibishitz were obviously much older, of a prior generation. He also was in <coughs> Lithuania, not in Bohemia, Moravia, or the German lands. So he says, I'm far away, I'm a young man, and I have a habit of being quiet about things. Don't ask my opinion, I'm not going to give it. So he, 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 he did not want to get involved in a public controversy. But that was 1756, in a matter that really had nothing to do with him. Later on, in the battle against the Hasidim, we'll see he gets heavily involved, because it's right at his doorstep. So already at 36, he was... He was recognized as a great man. Uh, at a fairly early age. I mean, he was a prodigy as a kid, but of course only those who were in the immediate vicinity knew that, but even the wider Jewish world by the, se- the mid-1750s knows that he is the Gaon Mivilna. How old he was at this time? He's 36 years old. No, before, even before that? Yeah. When did he start getting really famous? Okay, he was already very famous at that point. Now, how, how did anyone know who he was? So, if he didn't have a yeshiva, and he wasn't the rabbi of a town... And he didn't write works that were disseminated, that were published. Who would even know who he was? The answer is the family and a small circle of quote-unquote disciples who were merely the people who quote-unquote saw his face, Ro'e Panav, they created a mythology about him that spread far and wide early on. Now when I say he didn't write any works, is that really true? The Vilna Gon didn't write anything? Ah, he wrote plenty of works but they were all published after his death. He was a firm believer in the Torah Sheba'al Peh. What do I mean by that? 
Don't write it down. Exactly. The Torah Shebaal Peh was intended to be Baal Peh. No, it's his Peh. It's his Torah. But it's for private consumption. He's not writing books that they can be widely publicized. He's writing, he's jotting down notes on every aspect of Jewish literature, the biblical, uh, rabbinic, or Zoharic literature. Uh, and it's in his possession. And after he dies, some of it will be eventually published. So, for example, the, he has the Be'urei Hagra on parts of Shas and on the Shulchan Aruch. But the, one, the Be'urei Hagra on Orachayim was published in Shklov in 1803, on Yoredei Grodno in 1806, on Evna Ezer in Vilna in 1819, and Choshe in Konigsberg in 1855, a long time after he died. The Shnos Eliyahu, which is his commentary on the Mishnah, and the Adaris Eliyahu, which is his commentary in parts of the Tanakh, were published well after his death. Okay, so in his lifetime, you, d- you didn't read his works. So how do people know who he was? Answer, local reputation of being a savant, of being an ilui, of being a gaon, and his I- inner circle spreading his fame. Okay. Yes. He would answer uh, questions that came to him, but... Typically, questions didn't come to him if they were like you know of a, of a I would say petty nature. Not that any halakha question is petty, but in comparison to the big the macro issues affecting Jewry, he was not the Dayan, He was not the Avbezdin. So you wouldn't necessarily go to him if you were just a Jew living in Vilna. Aside from the fact that he might not even open his door to see you, uh, it wasn't easy to get uh, uh, permission to see him. All right. So it seems to be very convenient that even in a halachic argument. Uh-huh. or discussion, he didn't have to really have any problem with it because nobody could argue with him until after he was dead. Well, as we shall see, in his lifetime, no one would have the audacity, the temerity, to, uh, to challenge his authority on the larger communal issues, except for you know, the controversy with the Hasidim, and even the Hasidim were deferential to him. But on halachic issues, nobody, nobody. Yeah. Was, you know, people accept that it was different from what was being done in other places. Okay. So, what's the story with the Minagagra? The, Peru, the Perushim, the Prushim, the, uh, not the Pharisees of antiquity, but the Prushim, who were the Tamidi Hagra, who went to Eretz Yisrael, they took with them the Minagagra, which, by the way, was not all that popular in Europe. But the Minagagra did become popular and a dominant influence in the Jewish life of Eretz Yisrael and the old Yishuv. And even to this day, in, in what respect is the Minagagra popular? On a few issues. Number one, Tefillin on Cholomoed. Uh, number two, the time for accepting Shabbos. The earlier time for accepting Shabbos. And the Siddur. In certain respects, the Minagagra is... The, the method of Ashkenazic davening in Eretz Yisrael, where it's hard to find the real classical Ashkenazi shul. Everything is either Nusach Sfard or Nusach, or Nusach Ari Hagra. Uh, I mean, other than the great synagogue in Yerushalayim, it's very hard to find an old-fashioned Ashkenazic shul anymore. And you have a Mishurim, which used to yeah. be the yeah. the Gra. Gra, yeah. Who was his Rebbe? Okay, so he had a Rebbe as a child, Ramosha Margulis, who was the, the author of the commentary in the Yerushalmi called the Pnei Moshe, which may have, in some respects, influenced the Grah that he was a, a, a voracious student of the Yerushalmi, something that wasn't so common in the 18th century in Eastern Europe. He knew the Yerushalmi as well as he knew the Bavli, uh, despite it being this you know, exotic work, so to speak. 
Okay. Now let's get to the issues uh, of the Haskalah. So Reb Chaim Volazhin, who uh, dies in 1821 and establishes the Volazhin Yeshiva in 1802, uh, is credited with... Well, he is, he, he, is, he is known as the chief disciple of the Vilna Gon. And he agreed not on every aspect of communal policy with the Groz positions. In some way, he was, took a more moderate approach towards the Hasidim. But then again, by that point, the Hasidim had already been accepted as kosher Jews. Um, so the, the, the fact that the biggest yeshiva, the most significant yeshiva in Eastern Europe, is founded by the disciple of the Groz, allows for, throughout the 19th century, the Gros fame to grow far and wide, and, be, and for him to be identified after the fact as having been the most important figure in the 18th century. Now, he really was, but it, it's reinforced by the fact that the key uh, social and academic institution is connected through his, by his disciple. Okay, yeah. Hey, well, isn't the Gros really the modern part of the after any century? There's a lot of, you know, statutes or just summaries. Okay, so the Gros' relationship to Pilpul is a complicated one because he was against bad Pilpul, but he was in favor of good Pilpul. And I'll try to explain the difference between the two. All right. Um, Let's get to the issue of Haskalah. It is claimed by some that the Vilnagon was somehow the forerunner or the father of the Eastern European Haskalah. And why do people say this? Because of some comments that are attributed to him in which he says favorable things about secular learning. And he speaks of reforming the educational methods that were prevalent in 18th century Eastern European Jewish life. So if you're comparing that with what we know about the masculine of the West and about some of the lectures we've had previously, Moses Mendelssohn, when I spoke about Naftali Hertz-Wesley, pedagogical reform, and uh, an awareness of the library beyond the purely rabbinic library, those are key pillars of the Haskalah. So it sounds like the Gaon as, as a masculine has some, some, some legs to it. Okay. The key uh, source for this is Rabbi Baruch of Shklov. Baruch of Shklov from, born 1744, dies 1808, translated Euclid's Elements in Hebrew, into Hebrew in 1778. And he claimed that the Vilna Gon encouraged him to do this. And he, and he quoted the Vilna Gon as saying the following, To the extent that a person is lacking in secular subjects, he will lack 100-fold in the wisdom of Torah, because Torah and secular knowledge are bound together. End quote. It's a nice quote. All right? And you would not have expected to hear that from a conventional old-world rabbi who did not have secular knowledge and would not be extolling the virtues of secular knowledge and claiming that failure to have it, it results in failure in Torah. Is okay. this a minority of one? First of all, yeah. generally I would think not many people in the rank and file are able to read Hebrew. Oh, true. So Okay, so now you have a certain elite... That read yeah. Hebrew. Yes. And if there was a movement against this Haskalah type of thing, I would think that not many people read what you just uh, read to us. Okay. So, forget the reading the line out of the book. The sentiment was known. The claim that the Vilna Gon favored secular learning was widespread. He wrote the book on I'm just okay. 
so, so, so did he write a book on geometry? We will see soon enough. He is, he is credited with writing a book on geometry. But did he really write a book on geometry? We have to... Either he did or he didn't. We'll have to see. Okay. Okay. So, uh, now, Baruch of Shklov continued and said that the Vilna Gon commanded him to translate books so that knowledge should proliferate in Israel. Now, this is an assertion by Baruch of Shklov about what the Gon told him to do, and do we believe Baruch of Shklov or not? Well, on the one hand, he's a righteous man, and he's a good rabbi, and why should we think that he's lying? On the other hand, people tend to project onto others what they believe in their own hearts, uh, whatever their personal position is. And Baruch of Shklov was a real moscule, and he believed that it was important for the Jewish people to know secular wisdom because it's a disgrace that the Goyim know it and we're ignorant. And we have to not necessarily one-up the Goyim, but we can't be falling behind. It's, it's, a, it's a, an embarrassment to the Am Yisrael that we're so Ill, uh, unlettered in general knowledge. Okay. The next figure to make a claim about the Vilna Gaon's attitude towards secular learning was Isaac Bear Levinson. Isaac Bear Levinson really is probably the, the, the father of the Eastern European Haskalah. He's born 1788, dies 1860. His book, Tudabi Israel, was written in 1828. And he claimed that the Vilna Gaon and his disciples were all learned in the sciences. Is that true? No. He made it up. What's wrong with knowing sciences? Forget what's wrong or what's right. The bottom line is Isaac Bear Levinson who is a, f- a frum maskil in the 1820s and 1830s, claims that the Vilna Gon and his disciples all knew the sciences in the plural. Why is he saying this, if it isn't really true? Answer, it justifies, it justifies his own activities. So the Vilna Gon becomes this hero of the past who, about whom you could make all sorts of claims to justify your own behavior in the decades and generations to follow. Yeah, he died in 1797. Now, the next figure was Shmuel Yosef Finn, another from Maskil of Eastern Europe. In 1840, he writes Safala Ne'amanim, and he claims that prior to the Vilna Gon, learning in Poland was at a low ebb. It was, uh, it was, very, it was dominated by bad pilpul. Bad pilpul, meaning people were just um, trying to impress each other with their mental acuity. And they were running in circles, intellectual circles, but not trying to get at the truth. Um, and so, I, I've encountered Russia Yeshiva who to this day are of that genre. No. Uh, no t- uh, to be honest, it, 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 that genre is petering out, but there are still some who are of that, uh, that style. And so w- what the Gon did was he instituted a scientific method in religious education, according to Finn. What was that scientific method? Just follow the mission in Perkyavos. First you learn the Tanakh, then you learn the Mishnah, then you learn the Talmud. That you have a grounding in the earlier strata of the Judaic tradition before moving on to the more complex layers of the tradition. Makes a lot of sense. And yet the reality is, even to modern, modern times, in our day schools, do we do that? Absolutely not. The kid, learn, kid learns a couple of parakim para, and breishis and shmos, and then they go to Mishnah, Baba Metziah, and the next year they're learning Gemara. But in Israel, there's a... Uh, Some so there, there, there are trends in Israel to go back to the old, the, the, the Mishnaic style of, of learning, of the, the, the layered approach, finishing uh, each stage before going on to the next stage. You know, the proof in the pudding is that with art scroll, 
it took longer to for them to print the series on the Mishnayis yeah. than it did on the Gemara. The yeah, Gemara because the Gemara was a big seller. Exactly. Because people jumped to the Gemara. Yeah. Whereas, the, whereas the tradition tells us, La'olam have a la Mishnah. Always run to the Mishnah. But we don't, we don't adhere to that. Okay, so that was uh, Finn's approach. And he argued that the Haskalah went astray because the Misnagdim were reacting to the Hasidim and had to overemphasize pure Torah study and Talmudic study and Halachic study as opposed to general knowledge and systematic study of Judaic subjects just to counteract the evil, the pernicious effects of the Hasidim, and uh, also because of the bad stories emanating from Western and Central Europe about the heretical German masculine. So since Haskalah has a bad name, has a shame ra, therefore in the East it didn't, uh, the, the, um, the Gon style of religious Haskalah was never able to take over. Okay, Yoshua Heschel Levine, who was in the 1850s wrote, uh, in Russia, wrote Alios Eliyahu. He was basically like a modern Orthodox rabbi, a hundred years before there was modern Orthodoxy. And he claimed that the Vilna Gon favored a moderate amount of secular knowledge, a dual curriculum balancing Torah and general subjects, um, but that this, for whatever reason, did not pan out in Eastern Europe, that his approach was not implemented in practice. Now, Yakut Zvi Mecklenburg, who's the author, author of the Ksav HaKabbalah, a very famous work, gave uh, an example of the Vilna Gon, showing that a maskil need not throw off the yoke of mitzvot. Now, here is a key point. The Frum Maskilim of Eastern Europe wanted to show that the Vilna Gon was a maskil and that he was the greatest of all in Torah knowledge and in secular knowledge, just to prove the point that being knowledgeable in the sciences is not a legitimate excuse to become a shegetz, to throw off the mitzvot and become a chazerfresser and violate Shabbos. The argument is often made, well, if you know, you know too much to be religious. Uh, that uh, the, the, the person learned too much, he went off to the university and he's a kol ba'elo yeshuvan, they can't come back. They know too much, it's a lost cause. But by saying the Vilna Gon was as learned as any university professor, and he was still the firmest person who ever lived, it goes to show you that knowledge is no excuse for trampling upon tradition, or for walking away from tradition. Yeah, but wasn't his knowledge derived from his Torah study? Yes, yes. No, 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 he didn't. He certainly didn't. He certainly didn't. But, but the facts don't matter. What matters is the presentation after the fact. Like yeah. How different is he from that? Yeah. Right. How different from Mendelssohn is he in that, that way? From last week? Okay, so Mendelssohn is, no, is worlds away from the Vilna Gon, in that Mendelssohn was involved with Gentiles and studying philosophy. The Vilna Gon was an adamant opponent of philosophy. The Vilna Gon believed in science. Now, what kind of science? I don't know. But science, empirical. not ph- empirical science, but not philosophy. Yeah. In hearing this thing, in our own day, I think that a lot of this has to do also with the rub. Uh-huh. Because either everyone wants to interpret the rub the way they see it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and In his own image. In his own image. And everyone has an inside track to the guy. Right? And my role? Yes, it's true. It's yeah. true. Okay, now what did the, what did the, the Lubavitch say about the Vilna Gone? 
When we get to the fight with the Hasidim in a few minutes, we'll discuss it in greater depth. But in relationship to the Haskalah, who were the biggest opponents of the Haskalah? The Hasidim. In Eastern Europe, in the 19th century, the Misnagdim play a marginal role. The Frum Misnagdim. Who were the real power brokers? The Hasidim and the Maskilim. That's the real intellectual debate going on. And, diskin? Huh? Diskin. Diskin. Shmuel Ab Diskin? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was against the... Uh, yeah, yeah. There were, there were plenty of, of Gedolei Yisrael who were against uh, learning of anything. He doesn't, he's not part of this equation. He's in, he's in Germany. He's out of the loop. Out of the loop. Okay. So let me read to you... Okay, so the answer to that is for the most part, for the most part, yes, but the Lubavitch had an interest in rewriting history to say that that wasn't true because they were the, few, they were the one group of Hasidim that were at least connected to Torah study from the days of Shner Zalman uh, and were the first uh, Hasidic group to open up a yeshiva, Tom Chetamim, in 1897. The other Hasidic groups didn't have yeshivas until, even the, until the 20th century. That's next semester. Okay, but let, let me read you a section from. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the Friedricher Rebbe, the father-in-law of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So what did he say about the Vilna Gaon's relationship to Haskalah? He says, for many years, the Gaon had told his disciples, his respected brother Rabbi Yisachar, his respected son Rabbi Abraham, of his deep regret that the five books of Moses had not been translated into the Jewish vernacular Yiddish, with an easily understood commentary, properly arranged and accessible to all. Okay, it's a fair, it's a fair gripe. There's no Yiddish Chumash that, that's, that's usable. The Gon's brother and son, besides being incomparable scholars of the Torah, also possessed a wide knowledge of various sciences and spoke Polish, German, and French. Okay, now coming out of the mouth of the Friedrich Rebbe, that's already a shtach, that they knew, they knew languages. Knowing languages and knowing sciences is like not so good. That, and when it was heard that a great an observant scholar in Berlin, Moses Mendelssohn, had translated the Pentateuch into lucid German, they chose five of the best students and sent them to Berlin to investigate the character of the learned translator of the, of the Pentateuch and copy the translation. The students who had been sent remained in Berlin for more than a year and copied many pages of the translation of the Torah and brought them to the aforementioned scholars. The latter liked the translation and praised it to the Gon himself, and his permission was secured for the students to make several dozen copies of the translation, distributed among literate people, and set times for public instruction. The distribution of Mendelssohn's translation among students of Torah and literate persons not only detract, detracted from the brilliance of the Torah's sanctity, but served as a bridge over which dozens of pious and highly talented young men from the houses of Vilna, Shklov, Slutz, Brisk, and Minsk made their way to Berlin to learn German and the sciences and medicine and astronomy and geometry, among them Baruch Schick, Binyamin Zev Rivelish, Nasha Ilya, Pinchas Eliyahu of Vilna, and Solomon Dubno. Okay, now what happened here? The, the, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Schneerson, is saying that the Gon of Vilna and his underlings brought the Mendelssohn Beur from Germany to Eastern Europe to Vilna with, the, uh, in te- with decent intentions of, se- of securing a vernacular Bible, but that it resulted in the th- utter corruption of the leading lights of the, of the base medrash in Eastern Europe, that they should go off back to Germany to become masculine and uh, knowledgeable in, 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 in Goyish sciences. So he's blaming the Vilna Gon, blaming the Vilna Gon for the, uh, the, the destruction, basically, of the learned rabbinical class and for sending pious boys of Eastern Europe 
off to learn uh, in points west. This is true. Okay. So raise your hand if you think this is true. I'm glad nobody raised their hand. This is complete made up. This never happened. Okay. Yeah. Let's say sciences. This is God's creation. Uh-huh. Uh, and if you wanted, and the Rambam, he never studied science. How did he know? Okay, okay. All right, so, so, so. All right, all right. So, so. Did the church do the same thing? Well, the church did that on, on matters of religion. Jews, at least, never suppressed religious knowledge. We just suppressed secular knowledge. And, and everybody wants to go to a, a, a from doctor. Yeah. How would he become a doctor if he didn't? Okay, these are all valid yeah, criticisms well, of Lubavitch. Okay, so, so now, let, let me let me let me just uh, ask you a question. I first asked you, did this really happen? And no one raised their hand. But let me ask you a different question, and I give extra bonus points to whoever gets this right. What story in rabbinic literature does this remind you of? Joseph and his brother. No, no, no. It reminds me of it, don't you? Okay. (laughs) In rabbinic literature, what story has uh, elements that are like this story? Correct. Yes. Yes. The five students. Okay, the, the Septuagint is known as the Tagum Shivim because one version of the story has it that there were 70 or 72 translators, six from every tribe of Israel, six times 12 equals 72. But the other version of the story is that there were only five translators. Okay, this, and, and, and what does that story end, end up saying? That it was Kasha Kiyom Shanase Bo Et It was as bad as the day of the golden calf. So what is the Rabbi Schneerson doing? He's saying that this Mendelssohn Beer is horrible, and that although the Vilna Gaon's intentions originally were pure, doesn't matter because the end result was Kiyom Egel, that that the corruption of the elite of the learned class of Eastern Europe became instead of uh, scholars of the Torah, scholars of astronomy and science, and that's bad. Well, one thing doesn't make any sense. 1452, they invented the printing press. Uh-huh. Why do you have to send guys over to copy over a translation? Uh, there, there, there were Yiddish translations of the Chumash that predated the Mendelssohn Beer, but they weren't widely available and they weren't good. No, it's not. And the other part of the story that doesn't make any sense is that Mendelssohn's beer was in German, was in pure German. If you wanted a Yiddish translation, why would you go to the Mendelssohn beer? So the whole story is absurd on its, on its surface. Yeah. Didn't the girl go back and rewrite parts of the Gemara that really felt that didn't make any sense? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we're going to discuss that now. Uh, what was the Vilnagon's real attitude towards learning, towards Torah study, for that matter, secular studies, We've heard, after his death, how people projected onto him all sorts of attitudes and, ph- and philosophies of life and philosophies of religion. But what was the truth? So, um, just two more uh, assertions about him before we get to the, 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 the fair understanding. Jacob Raisin, who was an early uh, critical scholar, claimed that the Vilna Gon reformed the educational system and that his reforms were even more radical than Naftali Hertz Vesely. That is absurd because Naftali Hertz Vesely believed in Torah Adam and Torah Elohim. There's the Torah of man and the Torah of God. The, to- the Torah of God is the Bible and, and religious literature. The Torah of man is everything else, you know, math, science, literature, philosophy, history, politics. 
as opposed to the Vilna Gon, where there's only one Torah, God's Torah. And you may be able to derive secular knowledge from the study of Torah, that you can extract it from the, in, in between the lines. All right, Zev Yavitz, another scholar in the early 20th century, said that the Vilna Gon and the Polish and Lithuanian uh, rabbis were the true fathers of faithful criticism of rabbinic literature. And when I say faithful criticism, I mean uh, editing texts. Okay, whereas the, her- the heretics of Germany, of the Wissenschaft des Judentum, of the science of Judaism, they were the evildoers who, who butchered the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the language, the girsaot, to fit their, their fancy. Whereas the, the Vilna Gon did it the right way, and, uh, the kosher way, and with, um, with the intent to reveal the truth. Okay, so what was, what was really going on here? The Vilna Gon was not a Moskil. The Vilna Gon was not a Moskil because he was a, a man who believed in Chumrah in Halakha, in strict application of the law. He believed in asceticism, divorcing himself from society, and he hated philosophy. Real Moskilim love philosophy, interact with others, including non-Jews, and including people who don't agree with them, and they were typically softer in their religious observance. Okay? Moreover, the Vilna Gon did not promote science. He wanted a translation of the natural sciences because it would facilitate understanding rabbinic literature. He also was not in favor of, uh, of other uh, secular disciplines, except for translating history books like Josephus because it would facilitate knowing what's going on in the Midrashic literature. So why did he tell Baruch of Shklov to translate Euclid? Because it would help him learn Gemara. Not that there's any value in Euclid. Understand? There's no inherent value in the Mada. The Mada is just a perfumer and a, and, a, and, a, and a chef in the service of Torah. That these are, these are ancillary things that get us to a better understanding of Torah. Okay. Um, the Rambam does say roughly that. Roughly that. Although he, the Rambam had a greater sincere love of knowledge, of outside knowledge, than the Vilna Gon ever had. At least I would argue. Huh? Yes, there was a shul that was a cloise that was built next to his house. That, that, that served as his uh, place of a uh, makam tefillah. Um, but he didn't go like, to the, the, the cathedral synagogue of Vilna. That he didn't do. Okay, so what was his attitude towards amending the text? The Vilna Gon's lear- uh, scholarship was based upon four principles. Number one, commitment to the truth and objection to uh, superfluous and unnecessary displays of sharpness of wit or intellectual acuity. He's against a bad pilpul. You don't show off that you can connect the dots of various sugyot, but rather you connect the sugyot to get to the truth. If you, if you need to connect the sugyot to get to the truth, and if you don't, then don't. But don't play around. Yeah. So is this like a legend that he's on the level of Atana in order to basically establish his right to go back and rewrite the Gemara? Okay, so... He uh, arrogated to himself the right to behave as someone would have behaved several layers uh, of halakhic jurisprudence earlier than he actually lived. Meaning he throws him, he retrojects himself into the halakhic discourse of a thousand years earlier rather than staying in his own century. And he's the only one who did that, or the only one who got away with doing it. All right. The second piece is. 
Oh, yes. No, no, knowingly. Yeah. Now, the second piece is textual editing to solve difficulties, but only after much consideration. So he doesn't rely upon manuscripts, as would be the case of 19th century and 20th century Wissenschaft scholars. He relies upon his encyclopedic knowledge of all the literature and a knowledge of the language of the Rishonim on the basis of which to correct texts of the Gemara that had been corrupted since the period of the Rishonim. It's a brilliant approach, which, late, which you know, uh, 200 years later, Saul Liebman would do the same thing. But Saul Liebman had the advantage of a lot of printed books, and, you know, it, it was later in time. Now we have the Barilan software, so any Chaim Yankel can do it, I can do it. It doesn't take uh, encyclopedic knowledge. I just press a button, and I have all the, the Girsot in front of me. Um, Unlike the Sefer Torah, which is preserved pre- as precisely as possible, the books of the, of the Mishnah and Talmud were copied imprecisely sometimes, and you have invariably Shinuyenu Sakaot or Girsaot that some say this and some say that, and you put it in brackets or parentheses. Okay, so the Vilna Gon does that. He, he, in his marginal notes, he, he says it should be like this Abraham Geiger. Abraham Geiger, about whom we'll have a, a, a class in a few weeks maybe, was the leader of Reform Judaism and one of the great Wissenschaft scholars. And he, he, he thanked God. He thanked God. For what? For the fact that the Vilna Gaon lived in the 1700s. Why did he thank him that the Vilna Gaon lived in the 1700s? Because if the Vilna Gaon had lived in the 1500s, we would never have had all the various uh, um, available nuschaot of Gemara and Rishonim because the Gon would have changed them all and we would only have had his emendations and nothing else. So Baruch Hashem, the Vilna Gon lived in the 18th century so that we have all the stuff beforehand and he couldn't tinker with it. How do you like that? How did this compare to... What I just said was this. Let's say the, the biggest rabbi in the history of the world decides that instead of an Aleph, it's a hay. And everyone agrees with him because he's the biggest rabbi in the history of the world. And then every book afterwards has an aleph instead of a hay. And all the, the nuschaot that used to have the hay are eliminated from circulation. No one's ever going to know there ever was a text that had a hay. It's all going to have an aleph. But if you, if, if you have a rabbi who lives at a time when it's already late enough in history that the printing press has been around for 300 years and there are a lot of printed materials and there are various nuschaot that can't be suppressed and the biggest rabbi says it should be like this, all that happens is in his marginal notes it's like that, but the other versions still are extant. And thus the, the historian of the halakha or the historian of Talmudic development is able to go back to the, the, pre, the pre-existing versions and look at them and say, I think this is accurate and this is inaccurate. So had the Gon been alive a few hundred years earlier, that luxury would have been gone. Be, because his version would have been the only version that was allowed to, go, to continue going forward. Has there yeah. been any studies with comparisons of released Vatican texts? Oh, yeah, Xavier Vatican is an important... Uh, no, but as in comparison, let's say, with the emendations of, uh, of the Vilna Gaon, or... Uh, well, uh, I, I don't know too much about that, but um, in the 20th century, you ha- I mean, for example, the Tosefta Kipshuta by Lieberman has all the various nuschaot just below the fold from the, 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 like the four or five primary uh, um, manuscripts of the Tosefta that were available to him in the, in the 1950s. How that compares to emendations from the Vilna Gaon, I guess someone could do a study of how often he was right and how often it, his speculation was off. 
uh, I don't know. That's like that's like real minutiae that <laughs> I wouldn't want to get into. Yeah. And wasn't his um, thoughts maybe behind this um, to avoid bail, bad pill pull by you know saying this is a Scribner's error or trying to just or trying to understand the logic. Um, and, and short circuit, I guess, for Yes, discussion. yes. So by, by changing uh, a text ever so slightly, you can render obsolete a whole lot of pilpul. But he would only do it, according to his, his disciples, he would only do it if he thought that his emendation could solve multiple problems, multiple long-standing issues in the scholarship, not just that it solved this one issue on this daf. That is too willy-nilly. But if it solves a few things and seems consistent with the overall uh, thrust of the sugya and the masechta, then he would do it. Okay. Now, the other, another piece to, to his, to his uh, method of scholarship was connecting the late and early strata of, of uh, Torah knowledge, meaning that a law exists. It exists in the Chumash, it exists in the Mishnah, it exists in the Talmud, it exists in the Shulchan Aruch, it exists in the post-Shulchan Aruch literature. What the Vilna wants to show is how one stage of Torah leads directly to the next, which also means that if it doesn't lead to the next stage, there's something wrong about it, which means that he'll paskin against the Shulchan Aruch if he has to. If he thinks that the Shulchan Aruch rules in a way that is against the Gemara, he'll go back to the Gemara. And he'll even have the audacity to sometimes go back to the Mishnah against the Bavli if he thinks that the Bavli purposefully misinterpreted the Mishnah. Now, that's a, a, a very bold statement, that the Bavli purposefully mis- misinterpreted the Mishnah, but it, actually it does happen quite frequently. Because whenever the Gemara says, Chasri Machasri Katani, what does that mean? Something's missing. So the Gon thinks, no, the, the Mishnah is not missing anything. The Bavli wants the, this passage of the Mishnah to be viewed as being in agreement with the opinion of a certain Tana. Therefore, the Bavli will add words, massage the text, so that it could fit the opinion of X or Y Tana. But that, in fact, it was someone else's opinion and disagrees. Now, not that the halacha has to be paskin like the Mishnah as opposed to the Gemara, but sometimes yes. Okay. Were there any contemporaries of the Vilna Gaon uh-huh. who either felt threatened or challenged with dramatic, I don't think so. Position? I don't he think so. Yeah. Even if when he wanted to override the Shulchan Not everyone agrees with all of his with all of his rulings. The Minag Groh is not the universal Minag, and we don't always paskin like the Groh. Nineteenth century, twentieth century Ashkenazic life was not always in accordance with the, with the Shita of the Groh. Many, 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 many respects, it's not. But nobody, nobody had the chutzpah to say you can't do this or you're wrong. They could simply, you know. He wrote it. All right. So, yeah. All right. Now the last so, piece. Wednesday, yeah. So you're saying he was like the father. of so some would argue that, yeah. Okay. So if, let's say, you have the study of the Bible, right if you say you have the study of the Bible, let's say, in JTS, uh-huh. and, and they, they learn differently, uh-huh. Uh-huh. so do they base their way of learning on, um, the, well, if the Grad did it... The no, the Grad didn't touch the text of the Tanakh. That's but not... They did. They do. No, no, nobody touches the text okay. of the Tanakh. So what they, but they do touch. They discuss authorship and, and, and the critical study, but they're not, they're not tampering the text. Okay, now the last piece of the, of, of the, Go, the Gon scholarship is the connection between the Nigla and the Nistar. 
The nigla is the revealed, the nistar is the secret. So there are two parts of the Torah. There is the revealed and there is the uh, esoteric. The, the problem that many faced in Eastern Europe in those years was a perceived conflict between aspects of the Nistar, the esoteric Torah, and the conventional rabbinic Judaism of the Halakha. The Vilna Gon believed it's all one Torah, and he was a great Kabbalist. And what did he say? That any perceived conflict is only because of a misunderstanding, a popular misunderstanding of passages in the Zohar and the Kabbalistic writings. But that really, if you knew it, how to interpret it, it could all be reconciled. So, that's nice to say, but go try to reconcile things. And he would. Um, but methodologically, the point is, you can't just throw out an aspect of the tradition because it seems to run counter to the, the, the practical aspects of the tradition. Some would. In other words, some would, some misnagdim would, would, would take a, a jaundiced view of the Zohar and of the whole enterprise of the Kabbalah and say, there are, yeah, there are parts of it that's wrong. All right? Uh, there's, you know, the, uh, the, 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 I've been quoting Saul Liebman a few times tonight, but, but the famous thing he said about Gershom Shalom. What did Saul Liebman say about Gershom Shalom? In 1945, at JTS, and before a, a lecture, Gershom Shalom came from Hebrew U to, to give a lecture in New York, and Saul Liebman said, we have with us the greatest uh, scholar of the Kabbalah, Gershom Shalom, and he says, uh, nonsense is nonsense, but the history of nonsense? Now that's scholarship. <laughs> so... The point is, you, you could be dismissive of it, but the Gon was not. The Gon <laughs> respected the, the Torah Tani star absolutely. All right. Now let's get to the issue of, of the controversy with the Hasidim. So we're not going to go into what really happened about the, the, the Cherem in, in 1772 and how they were ostracized, the, the, the Hasidim of Vilna were, were, put in, were, were thrown out of the camp. There were attempts by Shneur Zaman of Liadi and Menachem Mendel of Ateps to, to go to the Vilna Gon and ask for a meeting, and they knocked on his door. Can, can, you know, can we discuss things? He didn't want to talk to them. He refused to have any contact with them. All right, that's all important, but I want to get to the issue of how the, the, the Hasidim dealt with their rejection by the greatest man of the times. So, um, there were those who doubted that the Vilna Gon initiated the persecution of the Hasidim. And they claimed that it was actually the Panasim of Vilna, the evil Panasim of Vilna, used the Gon as a, as a proxy, as, a, as a, a tool, a pawn at their disposal. That really was, uh, the, the Gon had nothing against the Hasidim, he was just uh, being used and abused by communal leaders with a social and political agenda, not a religious and spiritual agenda. Uh, so, but there were those who made this argument that it was social and political, not truly religious, and that the Gon was being used. However, that's not really true. The, the, the history is for sure teaches us that the Gon initiated the persecution after he re- received support, uh, reports from Shklov about uh, bad behaviors by the Hasidim. What bad behavior? They stood on their head during davening, they were mizalzal tamir chachamim, they were belittling Torah scholars, and that they misinterpreted passages in the Kabbalah to serve their own purposes. Alright, so, with this said, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with rejection? So the Maggot of Mezrich adopted a, an approach of restraint. Don't be belligerent and fighting back against the, the, the chief mitnaged, the Vilna Gon. Don't be belligerent. Accept it. Try to propagate the faith, 
but don't, uh, don't go on a defensive attack against the Gon. Shner Zaman of Liadi said to his Hasidim, don't defame the, the Gra. And after the Vilna Gon's death in Cholomot Sukkis of 1797, there were those who claimed that the Hasidim were celebrating the death of the Vilna Gon, when in fact they were just celebrating the Chag Sukkis, Mansim Chasenu, and so the persecution of Hasidim in Vilna was intensified, intensified, because uh, of this perceived uh, disgrace, mocking of you know, the death of a Torah scholar. So, how do you deal with it? Well, over time, three methods came about. The apologetic method, the harmonistic method, and that of intentional forgetfulness. So, the apologetic method says that what happened? The Vilnagon was deceived by false testimony. He meant well, his intentions were good, but he was given false information about the true nature of Hasidut, and that led him, incorrectly, to... Uh, issue bans and harems and persecute and do all sorts of vicious things and have uh, the blood of the Hasidim shed like water. Okay, that's the first approach. False information led to incorrect approach. Another way of looking at it was that opposition to Hasidut was legitimate but erroneous. In other words, sort of like Elav Elav Devela Kim Chaim we have our opinion, they have their opinion. They're both, you know, reasonable opinions, except our opinion is better. And so we can't hold the, the Gon responsible or at fault for having an antagonistic view. It's just that in the end, he was wrong and we were right and we won. That, those were some early viewpoints. Later on, you have other approaches. The, uh, the Mitzaref Avoda, was mid-19th century author, says that opposition to... Chasidut was divine providence. Why? Because the light that was being exposed or uncovered by the spread of Chasidut was too much. Too much for the world. And there had to be some concealment. And the concealment was manifest in the opposition of the great Mitnaged himself, the Vilnagon, to the light of Chasidut. So this is a very esoteric explanation. It says, you know, there's a light and darkness and you have to have a mixture of the two and too much light is no good and that's why it was God's plan for the Vilna Gon to be around. That wouldn't, that wouldn't pass muster in court. No. Now, another approach is, and this was Schneer Zalman uh, believed this and some of the other uh, figures in the early Hasidut believed this, that opposition by the Gaon was actually beneficial to the Hasidim because it called attention to an otherwise marginal movement and led many more people to become Hasidim. So, in other words, there's no such thing as bad publicity, because publicity is publicity. And, yeah, the Vilna Gon was against it, but God wanted him to be against it so that more people would find out about Hasidim and become Hasidim. You could put aside the divine providence part of that. But at the purely secular level, does that actually make sense? Yes, it does. Of course it does. There are many bad ideologies out there, like ISIS, that, yeah, the more people talk about it, the more the 17-year-old on the Internet tinkers around and discovers he likes ISIS. So when, when you speak about something, more followers, more adherents will, uh, will, will join their ranks. Okay. Another approach is that... No, no, no. Hasidus was, a, was a, a limited phenomenon before the 1770s. And even into the 1790s, it was pretty limited. 
by then it's already catching on uh, to a significant extent. In the 19th century, you have masses of Hasidim, but in the in the, in the late uh, the last third of the of uh, the 1700s, it's it's growing, but it's not there yet. It's not there yet. Be- precisely because it's growing, it's a threat. Once it's a mass movement, you can't fight it anymore. You have to make peace with it. All right. In 1902, the Beit Rebbe, uh, another author, said it was a machlokas l'shem shemayim. Machlokas, everybody meant well. Now, saying everybody meant well is nice a hundred years later. But in the moment, do you say everybody means well? Usually not. Okay. Yoshua Manshain said that uh, he was the one who said the evil, panas, uh, evil panasim were, were abusing the Vilna Gon, and that he really had no role in it. But Manshain is not a critical scholar and is just uh, an apologist for, for certain types of chassidus. Uh, the Freer de Gerebe, Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, was of the opinion that it's best to rewrite history and pretend as though there never was opposition to chassidus. Or at least not to mention that the Vilna Gon himself was opposed to chassidus. And instead, to write a version of the story whereby the Hasidim Misnagdim argued over who, was a greater to- who had greater Torah scholars and the Hasidim actually won. Now, why does he do this? Because his real enemy is the Haskalah. And so, by playing around with history so that a, a, a war between Hasidim and Maskilim is transposed on the late 1700s when the real issue was Misnagdim versus Hasidim, and the Hasidim are now the possessors of Torah, it makes them look very good. And it makes it seem as though there never was any serious religious opposition to Hasidut. But this is all very ahistorical and totally in character with the writings of, uh, of the Rebbe. Okay. Okay, so... The answer to that is, I'll give you two points. One, the Vilna Gon was very concerned about changes in the tefillah that were being made by the Hasidim on the grounds that the Shabtaim did exactly that. And so liturgical reform is Shabtaut, is Sabatianism. Now, of course, the irony is he himself is, is, is guilty of the same thing. But... Uh, Put that aside for the moment. He feared Hasidut in significant measure that it, out of the possibility that it's a manifestation of Shabtaut. Now, the other factor is, I didn't discuss this in his uh, way he learned, the Vilna Gon, according to his own say-so, had Magidim come to him. What is, what's a Magid? A Magid Mesharim. So I don't mean a human Magid. I don't mean a human Magid. I mean a celestial Magid. So a celestial Magid is reveals to you the uh, esoteric Torah or secrets of Torah. The Shulchan Aruch, Yosef Karo had Magidim and he wrote the Magid Mesharim, which explains how he how he had these interactions with these celestial beings. The Vilna Gaon says he had these interactions and he turned them away. He rejected them. Why? Because he wanted to learn Torah. He didn't want to be given Torah. That when you learn Torah through intellectual effort, it's like from, from PSM, from the mouth of God. It's a divine revelation. When you have a ma- huh? What is? Okay, so he doesn't. He doesn't want Lobashemayim. He doesn't want that. He wants, to, but 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 related to Shabtaut, he feared. He feared. He feared that the Magidim might not be Magidim Tahorim, 
but rather Magidim from the Sitra Achra. What's the Sitra Achra? The other side, the wrong side of the aisle. So, and because he felt that in the days of the, of the Shulchan Aruch, people lived a, a pure life. But in the days of the Frankists, and for those of you who are here, if we discuss Jacob Frank, it was a horrible thing, Jacob Frank. In the era of the Frankists, he feared that the Magidim really were from the side of the devil. So better to stay away and just learn Torah, steig and steig, and not have it revealed to you by this being who you don't know what it is. Not back then. Okay, so we're running out of time, but but uh, on the issue of Aliyah. So in 1783, he made an abortive attempt at Aliyah. Never got further than Germany. We don't exactly know why he turned around and didn't make it the distance. No, aside from the fact he was. He was 63 years old. Maybe it wasn't physically so easy for him. I don't know. Uh, but but uh, he, he, he went, he got along the way, and turned around. Why did he want to go to Eretz Yisrael? Because uh, he... Uh, no, there was, there, there was nothing in Eretz Yisrael of substance at that time. There was almost no community to, to speak of. But he had this yearning for the, the, the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. And some, you know, you might argue that he wanted to perform the mitzvot hatliot ba'aretz, the, 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 the land-based commandments. The trouble with that interpretation is that the Vilna Gon always was of the belief that Talmud Torah is more important than mitzvah observance. Gadol Talmud said. So there, yeah, therefore, I, I find it hard to believe that he wanted to go on Aliyah specifically for the mitzvot of, you know, Chala and Shuma and Meiser, like Moshe Rabbeinu, it says he wanted to cross the Yardin so he could do the mitzvahs, not to taste the fruit. But even doing the mitzvahs wasn't such a big deal to the Vilna Gon. So I, I, don't, I don't know what, what was the motivating factor, and we, and, and we don't know why he turned around. That's sort of like a, a lacuna in our knowledge. A Zionist. So his students did go to Eretz Yisrael. It was, it, 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 the Prushim, it was important enough to him to make an attempt and important enough for his disciples to complete the mission and actually get there. But it, it certainly was not uh, like a Yishuv HaChadash, you know, building up the land in the, in the physical sense of the word. His disciples who went were mainstays of the old Yishuv who were learning Torah. They were not uh, tillers of the soil. Okay. All right, we'll stop here.